I love that. Do you all have your Bible? Say yeah. Do you have a paper Bible? Say amen. Amen. We're getting there. I don't, you know, I joke about it, but week by week, more people have a paper Bible because it is the only way unto salvation. <laughs> For I am not ashamed of the Bible. No, I'm sorry. That's not the verse. <laughs> Out of context. We're going to Jonah chapter 3. This is a six-week series studying the book of Jonah, a book that most of us know or think we know. We've definitely heard the story before. And our time together over six weeks is, is a series called Course Correction. It's really about how God changes our directions. And this is our second to last message. And, and, and this one is really where we land, I think, land. Next week, we're going to talk about cranky Jonah after God does great things and he's still kind of frowny-faced. But this week is where I really feel like we come all the way around the corner and land on exactly who God is and, and how he works with us and helps us to correct our courses. I'm going to pick up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. It's the last verse that we read actually last week, but I, it actually ties better to the conversation that we're having today. We're going to read through verse 10. Jonah 3, 5 through 10. It reads like this. And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and he published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The title of our message today is Making the Turn. Making the Turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together and for this word. God, I'd ask that you'd... Um, that you'd give us clear instructions. We talk about big concepts in faith, and sometimes those things can go right over our head. God, I ask that you'd help us get right down into the nitty-gritty of how we are to walk with you. God, we cast aside every care that may have walked in here, every worry, every fear, every hang-up, everything that might hold us back from encountering you afresh. Right now, God, would you wash it off of our shoulders, out of our hands, out of our lap, that we may be ready to receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. My, um, Tyler, can you give me a countdown on this on the front? Just give me a regular clock. That way I, um, I don't take us until 3 p.m. Because it's good. Uh, um, my son, Kalel, is, um, is learning to drive right now. And uh, amen, amen. And, and my youngest son, Kanan, who's 14, is uh, also asking to learn to drive right now. <laughs> and I did, I did let him back out of the, the driveway, and it scared us to death. And, um, but my oldest, is, is he's learning. We're, we're doing the hours. I don't know if you know this, but when I was a kid, you kind of just get your permit and then, like, you know, lie and then go and get your license shortly thereafter. Um, but in today's day and age, the kids have to take a test, and then they have to get so many driving hours over the course of a year before they can get their license. And so he's got to get 50 hours under his belt, <laughs> which is a much safer strategy. And 
um, during the time that we're spending together learning to drive, I've, I've, I've noticed, you know, the hardest part of learning to drive is turning. And I'd never thought about the hardest part of driving, but it's turning. And the reason is because there's <laughs> just a lot of factors involved. I remember when I had my permit, the first accident I ever got in was when I was trying to make a left-hand turn. And, and I, I didn't know how to do that yet. I ran into somebody. And, and, and as Kalel and I are learning to drive, um, he, I'm helping him learn his turns. And, and you, know, you know the hard one, a left-hand turn into oncoming traffic is, I don't care how good you are, that's still a little bit daunting. But when you're 15, 15 and a half, 16, and you're starting to learn to drive, even a right turn can be a daunting task. D- don't, don't believe me, just sit shotgun with us as we back tire it over a few curbs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and what we're doing is, talk, you know, you have to learn the balance as a parent, right? Because you don't want to just be so freaked out, you're jerking the wheel and yelling and panicked because it doesn't make it easy for them. Um, but I also don't want to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm learning how to help Kalel make his turns. Um, those are the moments that are of, of greatest peril, actually. The moments where we change direction, where we, we go from one vein of traffic to the next. And I don't think I've ever understood God's role with me better than when I'm with Kalel when he's driving. It's like, it's like I'm navigating, but he has the wheel, right? And, and I feel like sometimes that's the way the Lord is with me. He's like, I'm navigating, and you're holding the wheel, right? And it's a level of like trust where the Lord's giving me an opportunity, giving you an opportunity to participate in this life of yours. But, you know, he's really still in control. And if need be, he can jerk that wheel. Amen. Some of us have had a few jerked wheels or the Lord's just put it in park and said, get out. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Today, what we're going to talk about is, is just this whole concept of, of what it means to really turn, what, what it means to change from the direction that you're going and make a course correction to a different way, whether it be, you know, just change in your habits or a total change in your character. I, I think it's, it's worth addressing, especially when we talk in this church, because we always talk in this church about big concepts like repentance. And I think, as I prayed, that if you don't really dive into the how of big concepts like that, obedience, repentance, sanctification, if you don't ask the question, like, what does that mean and how do I put it into practice, then it can just be religion. They can just say repentance, and you're like, yeah. And it doesn't mean anything. And if it doesn't mean anything, if you can't be the kind of person who is repentant, who's good at and loves to repent, well, then you're just a religious person. You're just, you're just a knower or a hearer of the word, but not a, not a doer. And the Lord calls us to be doers. And so I want to just look at this text today and, and kind of put some skin on really the big conversation we've been having for the last four weeks preceding, which is like God is calling us to change, to turn to repent. And the best part is that we get like a step-by-step in step instruction on how to do that from the most unlikely of characters. Would that I could tell you it was Jonah, but it's, it's not. It's the heathen king of Nineveh who shows us what true repentance really looks like. Now, bes- before we do that, I, I, I should probably preface this by saying before we get into how this heathen king does it. We should probably really just talk about like who gets to repent. Like who 
who can God really save? Amen? I, I think that's actually important because one of the biggest attacks that the enemy will put on every new believer, especially as they start feeling that, that, that prick, that conviction to turn, is that the enemy will tell you, well, th- you're too far gone. That's right, Ray. I mean, they, but not you. And I think it's important that every time we talk about this subject, we remind ourselves like, hey, that's for me, no matter what. In verse 5, that we closed last week's message with, uh, the apostle or the prophet Jonah who writes this story um, actually practices a pretty common Hebraic literary mechanism by which he writes a thesis statement. Verse 5, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for fast, put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them to the least of them. He's, he's essentially writing like the big idea. And then he takes the next five verses to explain it in greater detail. And I, I, I want to talk about the detail, but I, I just I have to sit here for a moment on from the greatest to the least. When I was in grad school, I got to, uh, I got to read Karl Marx. And he said uh, religion was opium for the masses. And I, I would tell you that probably most of the learned aristocracy of the day who don't hold on to a faith would still say the same thing. The people that go to church are just being placated, are, are just being inoculated, are just being brainwashed. And, and that's a prob- pretty common critique, which is to say the only people for whom religion really matters is for whom they don't have any other great options. But the Bible says that in this heathen country, that didn't even know God. It was the greatest to the least. And that has always been God's plan, that no matter who you are, he wants to make you his. I mean, you, you know the verses in Matthew 28 and 19, the Great Commission, he sends out his disciples to all the world, right? Not just the masses. He sends the disciples to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to each and every person who is living, not qualified, not just Jew, but also Gentile. Here in Jerusalem, yes. In Judea, absolutely. Samaria, uh-huh. And even to the ends of the earth. The gospel was always designed to be shared with everyone. John three sixteen. you know it. For God so loved the world. Even the critics. I love that part of the verse. I mean, you know that verse, right? But do you ever think that when he says that, what he's really saying is like, I love even the people who hate me so much that I will send my son to give them a way to spend eternity with me, which is kind of like the cutest of ironies, right? He's like, you don't like me? Great. I'm going to make you love me. And you get to spend eternity with me. God's like that all the time. God is not a respecter of persons. You know this, Acts chapter 10 says he shows no partiality. Whether wealth or status up or down, God does not look at the circumstances of man as a predeterminant on whether or not they're of value for the kingdom of heaven. Thank God. In fact, if I really read my text, I see Jesus have an affinity for the worst. When confronted by the Pharisees, he says, I didn't come to save the good folks, but the sinners and the sick, they're the ones who need the physician. So maybe Karl Marx is right. Maybe it is for the masses. Maybe it is for all of us. 
The difference is that Karl Marx just didn't realize he's us. The learned aristocracy who think that you and I are brainwashed (laughs) are brainwashed. They just don't know yet how sweet and how good he really is, which puts an onus on you. Amen. You see, as Christians, we sometimes like to insulate and isolate and talk about how mean the world is to us. And I want to tell you, I challenged our men this week to be reminded that you are called to the world. And so when they critique the faith, it's not because they're smarter than you. It's because they're hurting and they need the God who can change it. And so when you meet somebody that has a word, give them an ear and then give them love and then give them truth. Remind them that God... God loves you too. I don't even believe in God. He believes in you. And he's been thinking about you all the time. You want to drive an atheist crazy? Say that. (laughs) I don't believe in God. He believes in you. Whatever. (laughs) And he called me to tell you, right? (laughs) Romans 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power unto salvation for everybody. Amen. And here's the beauty is that only God's love, only the love of our God could embrace, as the Bible says, the least of these. There is no other faith that seeks the lost and the broken like our God seeks the lost and the broken. It is his love that finds the most down and out, downtrodden, outcast. He sits and eats with scoffers and sinners. He loves those who everyone hates. And he says, these are my people. It's only the love of our God who looks at you at your worst and says, I got great plans for your best. But it's also only the power of God that can pierce the heart of the greatest. And we see that in this text, that this king who has no need for this God is somehow moved by the word of this prophet, and it pierces him to his soul. Only our God can reach to the highest of heights and bring men low that they might realize the consequence of their sin and be desperate for a savior. I've said it before, uh, in my time as a pastor, I think the single hardest thing for people to overcome in order to come to faith is their own power. I meet people who are gifted, talented, or wealthy. They are the hardest to come to an understanding of their need. And I've done everything in my power to try to tell them, he loves you, he misses you, come on, come on, come on back. One day it's all going to fall down. Your money doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All I can really do for people in that power is pray that God's power pierces it and brings them home. And so there's someone in your life who really, by all circumstances and situations right now, would tell you like your religion thing, it's adorable, but I don't need it. And what they're really saying is, you have a God, I do too me and so when we're faced with that we just do what Jonah did which is speak the truth and let the Lord do his thing but the good news is that the Lord's thing is for everyone and what happens here is that when this word from Jonah comes to the city in Nineveh 
We don't really know how long he was there, but the Bible tells us that eventually his word came to the king in Nineveh, verse 6. And what we really see in this moment is as this word hits the king, it transforms him, and then he puts forth an edict whereby everyone in this kingdom can be transformed, and they collectively, Assyria, this violent, sinful, savage country, gives us the perfect model of what it truly means to believe. And I love that about this book. I love that God chose Jonah, the reluctant prophet, to lead people that he, let's be honest, straight up hated and believed weren't worthy of God's love so that when they finally respond to God's love, it shows you exactly how you can do it. And what it does is it nullifies your argument, like Ray would say, that you're too far gone. Right? They're way far gone. Remember, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about who Nineveh is. Nineveh is the seat, the head of the Assyrian Empire, the city of Nineveh, seven miles across, the suburbs around it, 60 miles across. The people of Assyria, the biggest enemy to Israel at the time, are the single most violent empire and most powerful people in the world at this time. They are stone-cold killers. And to prove it, at every gate in their city is a pile of the dead skulls of the defeated that they took down. And on the outskirts of the roads that lead up would be men and women impaled on spikes only to die in the hot sun to show you who they are. They would scalp and skin their enemies alive. And God's like, oh, man, that's who I want to lead home. What is it about my God that loves people like that? Why does he love us so bad when we're so bad? Bible says, word of the Lord reached the king. Remember, Jonah's word was in 40 days God would destroy. So within 40 days, the king hears the word and he's moved. And this is a detailed account of how he's moved. You have to see this. It says, the king, after having heard Jonah's word of God's judgment of his wrath, he stands to his feet off of his throne. This is the single greatest emperor that is existing in this time period in the world. It says he gets up off of his throne and he takes off his robes. These robes that symbolize his authority, his power, his autonomy, he lays them on the ground. He covers himself in sackcloth and he sits in ashes. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard about sackcloth and ashes. And if you're like me, you're like, seriously, somebody better explain that to me. That makes no sense. So let's do it because I don't want you to miss it. Sackcloth is a tradition in the ancient Near East, but most specifically practiced by Israelites, whereby they would actually adorn themselves with no undergarments in sackcloth. You could think about it today as burlap, but in that time it was woven goat's hair. And at the time when this happens, it would have been worn as a full garment. But originally, when Israel would put it into practice, when Isaiah was told by the Lord to wear sackcloth, it was an undergarment. Imagine in your mind, eagle-eyed Isaiah, the one who foretold the coming of the Christ in his everyday living as commanded by God. The only thing that the prophet wore was underwear that were uncomfortable. Have you ever had a pair of uncomfortable underwear before? You ever had it where your tag is just like all day long? Not Jason, because Jason... He'll remove his tags. But have you ever had yourself like, you ever been in a pair of uncomfortable clothing? It's not bad. 
It's just never leaving your mind. Have you noticed that? Like it's just enough so that no matter what you're doing, you're like thinking about that rock in your shoe or why are they bunched up? They're supposed to be down here. I can't, I don't. The purpose of sackcloth in this time period was, yes, to create a sense of discomfort in the world, but also to represent submission to the God that was greater than them, a recognition that they were humid and infallible and finite, that they were fallible and finite so that they would be mindful of a God who is infallible and infinite. And it was meant in the ancient Near East to be warned, to be reminded that you are submitted, you are lower than, and it was worn in times of mourning. When a tragedy would occur, they would dress in sackcloth to be reminded of the fragility of life. And this king has no need for sackcloth in his life. He doesn't need to be reminded that he's fragile or finite. He's neither in the eyes of the kingdom that he rules. And yet the word of the Lord comes and it hits him like a ton of bricks. And the Bible says this king discards his authority and wraps himself in mourning and sits in ashes as if to say, I am undone. And then he he issues a decree, a decree to the entire country that they follow suit, a decree that says, I have seen the light, so to speak, and we collectively have got to repent or the word of the Lord will come true. Exactly what Jonah said will happen, will happen, and it's time to change our course. Now, I need you to understand for a moment that this is probably not the best way for you to exercise your faith. We should just waiting for somebody with greater influence to tell you what to do. Amen. But can we say this? In some seasons, other people's faith can carry you from one to the next. I don't know if I have anybody who has a mom who prays for them. But there are some times in your life when you've lost your faith in other people in the church. That's why we have the church would say, don't you worry. My faith will carry you through until you land from glory to glory. Amen. I love that the heathen king of Assyria looks to his people. He says, we're lost. And if you don't have faith, Watch me, I have enough faith for this season for us. What must it have been like to be a lieutenant or a captain in that army and to watch your king who is a stone-cold murderer change his heart? You ever seen somebody that you thought would never get saved get saved? And you're like, what? We're going to have a party in heaven? That's because the gospel is for everybody, even the worst. The king issues his edict, and he says, we're going after this God thing. Trust me. And what he does is he builds a battle plan for us. There's four components to true repentance that he shows us in this moment. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the king is moved by the words of the prophet to demonstrate for us exactly what it means to make your turn. First things first is to mourn. The king adorns himself in sackcloth and ashes. He's, he, he demands that the rest of the people do the same thing. And it is this, the first step in changing your course from the life you're doomed in, in your sin, to an everlasting life, an eternal life, is first you've got to regret. Your heart has to be convicted. You have to have a sense that you've done wrong. And I I can't make you feel that. Uh, no one can make you feel that. 
Only the Holy Spirit can make you feel that. And sadly, you can work real hard to resist it. But there comes a moment when you really are confronted with what your sin will earn, which is death. The Holy Spirit's conviction can move you to a place of mourning and recognizing this is who I am and this is what it means and I'm, I'm hurt by it and I'm done with it tells the people it's time to feel the weight of who we were, the sin, and the consequence thereof. Now, I meet a lot of people who are right there <laughs> all the time. They're called Catholic. Sorry if you're Catholic. I, it's the idea, see, if you just stay right there, but then nothing else changes, then you don't move to repentance. You just live in guilt, Right? So you have to say your Hail Marys and your Our Fathers in hopes that that would take the burden of guilt off of you. But practicing ritual and religion doesn't take the burden or the weight of sin off of your life. The conviction that you feel when you do wrong is the first step. And God does not want you living in guilt or shame. That's what the enemy uses. He says, you're bad, you'll always be bad. And God says, but I am good, so much better than what you've done. And so the first thing he does is he pricks your heart and says, that's not who I made you to be. You're so much better than that. Let's get out of this. And, and I want to challenge you today, if you've been hearing that, stop fighting that. And just, just can we say this? Just feel it for a minute. People, people don't come to church because they're like, you know, I just don't, I don't like to, like, especially Deacon. Right? He's always, like, yelling. And, um, and I just don't, you know, or they say this. Pastor, I want to come, but I got to get right first. Right? And I'm like, if you could get right first, we wouldn't need God. Amen? So you come here and you feel it. And then you take step two. And the king shows us exactly what to do with that. It's so strange. He says, he issues a proclamation published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He calls for a fast. And what he's doing in this moment is he's, he's taking us from step one to step two, which is first things first. I feel regret for my sin. And then, ready, I abstain from it. Just for a moment. I consider the fact that maybe that's not worth doing every day. And he calls for a fast in a moment where there's no need for a fast. This country, this people, they're full of wealth and power. And when he asks them to do something, for many of them, it might have been the first time they'd ever heard it. And you know what? For some of us, when confronted with big sin, we know, like, yeah, I got to stop doing that for sure. But I don't want to, but I will. And then as the Lord works with you, have you ever felt this? He starts working on little sins that you didn't even know were sin. He's like, I, I just need you to stop watching R-rated movies. And you're like, really? I'm stuck with PG-13? He's like, yeah, because, you know, when you watch those, it, boy, it just changes your language. It changes the way you think. When, when you watch violent things, you tend to think more violently. And I'm the God of peace. Little things like that. He's asking, he's inviting, the king is decreeing, if we feel, we need to take some action about it. Now, I meet people like this. They're always stuck on this one. They're always in the position of abstaining, right? They're always in a fast. They're uber-religious. I feel like they're white-knuckle Christians, right? You're just like, how you doing? They're like, I'm really, 
blessed. It's going great. <laughs> I'm like, you make me nervous. It doesn't seem great. The Bible says that for freedom, Christ made us free. I need you to understand that the Christian faith is, is, is built upon concepts like sacrifice and submission, but it is not meant for you to hate every moment of the day. Amen? But Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's a moment in the journey of repentance where you feel the regret and you abstain or you fast or you take a moment to let go of worldly pleasures or the things that bring you comfort such that you can get the attention of God in your own heart. Not that he's not looking at you, but so that finally you might look at him. Take your eyes off the screen. Take your eyes off the lust. Take your eyes off the things that have enamored you and gotten you drunk with the taste of the world that you might taste and see that God is good. brings us to the third part. King says, let everybody fast and mourn and let them call out mightily to God. The third part of repentance is prayer. Simple, right? Do you know this is the part none of us do? It's the least likely. Prayer is the single most challenging thing for most Christians to practice. Isn't it weird that you have literally the bent ear of the creator of the universe, and yet you don't talk to him as often as you could? Or I might even push you to say, should. Do you have somebody in your life who whenever, how do I say this delicately? Well, Do you know anybody who just won't stop talking when they're around you? That should be. <laughs> That's you, she said. <laughs> that should be you with Jesus. Amen. Honest to goodness, if you really understood the power of your prayer, because it doesn't change him, it changes you. Right? If you really understood how eager your God was to hear your voice, you'd understand that like you should never stop talking to God. Any moment of the day, he's super eager to hear your voice. And so when, when the king in Nineveh says, we, we've got to make a change, he says, first things first, we need to mourn what we've done and who we've been and what we've accomplished. It's all for nothing. We need to feel that regret, and then we need to immediately stop it. We're going to abstain from worldly pleasures, including eating and drinking. We need to get our attention focused on God. And then he says, and when our attention is there, we need to shout to the Lord with a cry asking for mercy. He uses the word mightily. He does not say politely ask for forgiveness. He says this is a desperate matter in an urgent moment. You've got to shout to God, help me, help me, help me, help me, I'm dying, help me. That's the prayer, that's what repentance, it really looks like. And I know we don't move on that one. We like to shout at other parts, but that's what real repentance looks like. It is understanding that I am dead in my sin and I am accursed with a curse that has come down from generation to generation. And if you don't break these chains, I'm doomed. And I want to birth a sense of urgency in you today, believer. I want you to feel the pain of your sin and desperately ask him to help you fix it. And you might say, I don't pray like that. Fast long enough, you will. Amen. Ask anybody who's fast, right? If you fast, another religious term that we overlook, 
If you forsake things that bring you worldly comfort so that God can get your attention, you have supernatural power when you pray. Your prayers change, amen? You suddenly are not watching the clock and waiting for the person next to you to finish because Chick-fil-A's, oh, Sunday, darn, I get to go to Wendy's, okay? And that's where you're thinking in your head through prayer time. Oh, when food's not on the table, water's not on the table, TV, entertainment, social media, whatever you fast from, when those are removed, you know who's on the table? Jesus. Your prayer changes. Number four. The king says, let's call out mightily to God. And then let's turn. He says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God might turn. He says in this moment, we, we, uh, we really got a chance here not only to stop doing what we're doing, but to walk away from it. And I don't, I love the transparency of the king because I think it's important that you and I have the same transparency. He says, I don't know if it's too late. And as I'm preaching that, I'm just thinking, what must that have been like? To really know that God was real and to tell his people, like, we, we, it might be too late. We, but let's try it. And to turn in this moment, well, this is, this is the power of God that makes this thing happen. You are called to make the turn. And I don't just mean stop doing some things. I mean start doing some other things, right? Repentance is a changed mind. It means a changed direction. It doesn't just mean, God, I made a mistake. Please forgive me. Probably going to do it later today. That's not repentance. You don't get to ask for forgiveness for sins that you know you're going to continue to do. That one hurts, huh? Doesn't it? But that isn't real. You don't mean it. You are faking the funk if you tell your God, I need your forgiveness. I'm not stopping it. I just don't want to feel bad about it anymore. You have to turn. Now, if you're going to make the turn, the road's got to be open, right? Kalel and I are driving in the car, and he wants to make a right turn, and there's a road closed because we live in new construction. <laughs> Sometimes he puts that blinker on, and I'm like, wait, uh, hold on. Because uh, uh, I know the road's closed. I can see it, and I'm like, you see it? And he's like, see what? And I'm like, stop. It's not open, man. But if you really want to make a turn in any direction of your life, that road has to be open. There's got to be access to that thing. You and I need to know which way to go and be able to walk down that road together. It's true in the natural world and super true in the supernatural world. And here's why. Because sin has a consequence. There is a price to be paid for sin. In the Old Testament, they knew that there was atonement that had to be made. God had instructed them. It's in Leviticus chapter 9. Let me read it for you real quick because I think that we miss it. We forget. We think God's so full of grace that all we have to do is say oopsies and it's all good. Leviticus 9 and 7, Moses says to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people. Bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them. The Lord has commanded this. The instruction is this, sin has a price, and that price must be paid. And in the Old Testament, they would bring their sacrifice to the altar. The preachers and pastors were more butchers than anything else, and it was a way to demonstrate to the Lord 
that we felt the regret for our sin, that we had abstained from it, that we were crying out to God through our sacrifice, and that we were asking him to take this as a payment for our sin. What's interesting is that the people in Nineveh do the same thing. They just don't really understand how to do it. You ever read this text and see that the king calls for a fast of the beasts? He, he says that the animals should fast. Is that weird to anybody else? I, I don't remember if all dogs go to heaven, but I know goats do not. And so I'm not sure why we would... <laughs> livestock is weird. I don't know if you come... I'm freaked out by cows and pigs. It's just... I don't, they're not in heaven. Anyway, look, I don't know. I'm not sure how animals get to heaven, but I do know that Jesus did not make a way for animals. This eternal life is reserved for us. And yet, he calls for a fast for the animals, as though they could feel regret, as though they could abstain from sin. Why does he do this? There is a beautiful thing about our God in that even when you come to him, even if you come incorrectly, but you still come to him, he counts it as correct. I mean, even if you're the kind of person that doesn't know where you put your hands during worship at Beacon, right? Or you go to some churches and they clap on one set of beats, <laughs> and then at another church is a different set of beats, or they pray in tongues, or they do this, or they do that. Even if you're the kind of person who doesn't know how to play the religious game, but you know you need Jesus, that's all you need to know. You get to grow in your understanding of the ways of the Lord, but you are not required to know the ways of the Lord. You run to the Lord, and he is the way. That's the beauty of this. And so Nineveh and the king, they know there's a price to be paid for their sin. They're just not sure how to do it. So what they do is the king calls for a fast of the animals. Now, what animals did they use? Well, in this time, they would have eaten sheep, lamb, and goat. And if you know, those animals have to eat all day, every day. And these are people of war. The Assyrian coat of arms that was on the warrior's chest was two horses. They all rode horses. And if you know, those animals have to eat all day, every day and so when the king calls for a fast it's not for their soul it's because they're the sacrifice he says i don't know how all of this works but i'm so desperate that we don't burn in hell give him everything and i don't even know what that means but uh i know what the other thing means jonah told me we were done with Now, there's a, a phrase he says here. It's desperate, and it's sad. Verse 9, when he calls for this fast, when he calls for this morning, when he makes forth a sacrifice and he tells the people to turn, he says this sentence in verse 9 that I think it's just, it's, this, it's, it's the most devastating sentence, I think, in the Bible. He says, who knows? God might relent. I, I have, and maybe I'm in the wrong church, but I have been there where I've wondered, like, 
who knows if I'm allowed back in the kingdom? Who knows if this last batch of season of sin is too much? Who knows? I don't know. I hope there's a way home. I'm going to give it a shot. And I, when I read this text, I always remember and think of, of, of this, the, the great fear that must have come over the people of Nineveh to see the uncertainty even in their king's eyes. He's moved by what they've fallen into, and he's not sure, but he's willing to give it a shot. And heretofore, they haven't seen their king act like this. Even in this moment, they realize there's someone greater than our king. But I'm encouraged for us. Because when he asked the question, who knows? (laughs) The answer for us is, uh, we know. We know whether or not God will turn. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, they would give a sacrifice of atonement. That was the price that needed to be paid. It was prayed every year for the sins of that year. Nineveh knew there was a price to be paid for their sin. They didn't know how or how often or what it was supposed to take, but they knew that they had to give something to God to show that they were all in to the table. And the good news for us is that even in both of those instances, it was a wonder, it was a fear. Will this hold? Will it stick? Even in the annual sacrifice for the people of Israel at the tabernacle, it was like, gosh, I hope this is enough. Last year was pretty bad. But there's something different for us. You see, sin still has a price. But the price has been paid. You see, when God gave us Jesus, and he came down, and he stretched his arms, and they pulled them as tight as they could here, and they anchored that right palm into the board. And they pulled as hard as they could here. And they anchored that left palm. When they stacked his feet, one on top of the other, and they drove the 18-inch nail through both set of feet into the board. When 12 men stood behind that cross and slowly raised it up, pushing it until it fell into the hole, When Jesus hung on that cross under the weight of his body, when he would push up on his feet and feel that nail rip through the joints and skin only so he could get a breath, but the pain would be too great so he'd let go and be suffocated in every moment. Under that weight, he was paying I recognize that in every breath and, and, and in every ounce that would tear at his flesh, it was as if he was taking the weight of your sin on him. And every time that he would come up, it was like renewed strength to say, there's still a few more that I have to pay the price for. And then he would fall again. The Bible tells us that Jesus died by asphyxiation. That's how you die on the cross, which meant that for the time that he was on the cross, he was in a continual cycle of standing and hanging to get air and to suffocate, to get air and to suffocate. And that movement would have torn those nails nearly down to the edge, would have torn those nails all the way up to his ankle bones. It was in that moment he was carrying the weight of your sin. 
And so the king of Nineveh says, who knows? And I say, I know. I know that he's turned from the pain and the disaster that my sin has earned me. I know that he's turned from the wrath that is due us. I know he's changed his mind because he poured out that wrath on my brother, my savior, my king, my God, my Jesus. That's why we get to sing this praise. We sing Psalm 30, chapter chapter 30, verse 11. It says, for you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. Oh, my God. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That is how he makes the turn. He puts Jesus in your place and says, here's a new way. So you're here, and you've been wondering, how do I do this? Is it too late? Am I too far gone? And the answer is absolutely not. Today is the day. Today is the day that Jesus had prayed for and planned for, and he was hoping that today would be the day you respond to the gospel. So if you're here right now and you feel finally for the very first time the mourning and the regret of your sin, if you know that he's called you, abstain from it, but not just let go of it, but to turn from it, today is the day you get to call out mightily on the name of the Lord. And he answers those prayers fully and completely. Would you bow your head all over the room? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If that's you here today, I'm going to pray a prayer you can say with me. It's not the end, it's just the beginning, and we're here to walk with you as you do it. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. This is your moment between you and him. If this is you and it's your day to say yes, to come home, all I'm asking is that you would look up at me real quick so I can make eye contact with you. I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. I see you, 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 I see you. Would you do me a favor, everybody in the room, we're going to pray the same prayer right now. Repeat after me, Father God, I'm a sinner. My sin has earned me death. But Jesus, I believe that you paid that price. That on the cross you died, and three days later you rose. And because you live, I live. Because you are king, I'm redeemed. I give you my life, and I give you my heart. Take my mourning. Give me gladness. Take my sackcloth. Give me nice clothes. Take my sadness, and give me joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.